This episode is brought to you by our amazing patrons over at Patreon. From a cup of coffee to a bowl of ramen per month, they've shown their support. If you are enjoying this work, please consider supporting me at patreon.com forward slash Tokushikai Canada. So without further ado, please enjoy this in-depth look. We're, we're not expecting you to, to answer the question, so it's just let's get your professional opinion and then we can also just ask additional questions. Is there any questions that you want to start with or I can just go down the list? And... Yeah, we can go from the starts. If, if there's some questions I'm not prepared for, I'll just let you know. I couldn't research them all, but I, I was able to do most of them. So if okay. there's a particular one you want to try, hopefully it's one I've prepared for, but before I... All right. So cool. The first one is a pretty simple one. We've already talked about a little bit is in James Nestor's book, he strongly recommends nasal breathing over mouth breathing. So he mentions a few things, including humidification, filtration, and warmth uh, of nasal breathing. So what has your, been your experience in terms of mouth breathing over, I mean, uh, nose breathing over mouth breathing? Yep. Well, let's, let's put it this way. Nature has separated our food entry from you know, air entry, even though they can communicate, and there's a, and there's a reason for this. So he's absolutely right. Our nose is built to humidify our air, which is very important because this air will eventually get humidified at some point in our traveling down to our lungs. We don't want our lungs to provide this humidity, right? It has another job to do. So nose breathing is is just for that. It's, it's full of mucus, full of humidity, and it's going to moisturize and bring it to temperature before it reaches the lungs. So yeah, that's physiologically is very, uh, it's very important. I'm sure we all have run uh, outside when it was like, you know, super cold, like minus five, minus 10, minus 15 Celsius. It's very uncomfortable, right? You're, when you run, so you breathe through the nose and your lungs are hurting. It's not necessarily a good thing. And if we go to the nitrocosite question, we can actually re revisit that. So yeah, we want, we want, definitely want to, uh, to breathe through our nose for, for those reasons. Now it's not, doesn't have to do with oxygen or carbon dioxide. That job will be done anyway. But in terms of comfort and keeping things nice and moist and comfortable, that's absolutely essential. So warmth and, and humidity, like those two things, what is it actually, what is the benefit of having that? Because we know that inside our bodies, it is warm and wet. Mm -hmm. Like what's the benefit of having it, having the air going into the lungs already pre-moisturized, pre-warmed up? So in terms of moisture humidification, if we, the, the, the part of the lungs, the alveoli that do the job, it's very thin tissue. Can you, you think about it, it's just very, they're made of one cell layer. It is very, very flat. So it's very fragile by definition. So any sudden change in surface tension because the immunity is not right in there, in the air that is in there, may actually kill it. Right. So it's really to protect our, our alveoli who are doing the job of gas exchange. So yeah, everything can be summed up in there. And so moisture, uh, you know, moisture definitely very important. Temperature also very important. If the air arrives at too cold, our cells have a system to respond to shock, heat shock in particular, and that are there to protect the cells more or less, but that shuts down some of the function of the cells in the process. So yeah, it's, you know, if we want to keep, keep those cells functioning at top capacity, 
it's better if they work with something that's already at the right temperature and right humidity. So because this conversation continuing has gone a lot through about efficiency, optimization of breathing and getting oxygen in carbon dioxide out, we could kind of say here too that cold air and dry air would limit the capacity of our lungs to do its work. So it would affect those, that stuff too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so question along this, if that that's how we think about humans, like our noses like this, is it is there any difference between humans and animals on in this case? No. No. The only difference are, and if you have the chance to look at the Museum of Natural History and look at skulls of different animals, look through the nasal passages, and they have this, this bony protrusion, actually look like little circles wrapped up, like you take a piece of paper and you wrap it up, it looks like that. Those are called uh, turbinates. We have something similar, although a lot less extensive, concave, whatever it is. So what it's meant for is when the animal is alive, it's covered in, um, in, in cells that produce mucus. Then it increases surface area for, for exchange of humidity and temperature. So those, oh, those animals that have the biggest, the most developed turbinates, you can bet they either live in very cold climates or in very dry climates. So it's very cool to see the, the, the evolution of that particular bone structure depending on where the animal lives, it's pretty cool. So, but it's, long story short, it's the same in animals and humans, they're just animals are usually more conscripted to a particular region and they are really evolved, they adapted to their environment in terms of temperature and, and uh, humidity. Cool, okay. The, the next question is also from uh, James Nestor's book where he said the perfect breath is you breathe in for 5.5 seconds and exhale for 5.5 seconds. And that 5.5 breaths a minute for a total of 5.5 liters of air. That seems very specific to like, because people have different body types, but like what's your uh, thinking on that? Yeah, so I'm going to take that one with a grain of salt. So I went through, through the calculations in many different ways to see if I could get at some point the same numbers and I can't. <laughs> so I'm not sure how he made his calculations. However, I'm going to go to the root of his uh, story, which is you breathe in for a long time and you exhale for a long time. And that is actually, is a good thing. So something about lungs, mammals, lungs in general, and we're mammals is uh, we, we breathe through, uh, through a tidal system, like the tides of the sea that comes in and out. So the air that comes in goes out through the same passages. It seems kind of dull, but actually birds don't do it that way. It, you know, so it's not always what's seen in nature. And so what does that mean? Is uh, whatever air volume you have in your, in your lung at coming in and going out, it's not necessarily the same as the volume of your airways because your lungs do not collapse completely or your airways do not collapse completely exhalation, for example. So the disadvantage of tidal respiration is whatever uh, volume you have in your lungs, it's not the amount of air you breathe in, it's going to be less. So this aspect, this two terminology is called the, the dead volume. So that I think it speaks to you. It's the volume that you can't get air in and out out of that because this is the space occupied by your airways when you're completely exhaling everything. But what's important is the volume and that depends how much air you can get in 
So the, this formula of how much title volume you should have doesn't really matter, I don't think here, but you can always achieve that tidal volume, that's maximum amount of air you can get in and out if you breathe in deeply and exhale deeply. So you breathe in deeply, so you have the most oxygen coming into your lung as you can, and you exhale deeply to remove as much carbon dioxide. So in that regard, his statement makes sense. The math, I really can't get it. So maybe if he explains a little bit how it does the math, maybe I'll be able to, oh yeah, sure. But I can't, I can't math, take, um, do the math myself and get those numbers. I think, you know, this, this is intended for his audience, okay? So if you have the same number in out, he could have said six, he could have said four, the same number of second in and out and roughly the same volume. So it's easy, easy to remember. And whether you say, you know, three, because you've got, you know, your kid, you've got small lungs, or you say six because you are, you know, a professional swimmer or something like, or seven, you know, it's, yeah, I think the idea that it, the, the timing is proportional to the volume that you want to get in and out is logical. The number attached to it is random, is a choice. <laughs> I, no, yes, so that's right. Remember, he's a reporter, not a scientist. Yeah. yeah. But it's much more likely that somebody would remember that rule than if he'd say, you know, it's two, six, three, or four, you know, then, then uh, people would be, oh, what is the first number? What is the last number? How do I do it? In which order? You know, I, I think that's, that's, that's the intent. Yeah, I personally have problems. I mean, you don't have to make the, up those numbers to make it flashy. I know as a reporter, he's used to that, but I have a problem with this as a scientist. It's, you don't need to put numbers thinking that people will remember them and remember the message. It, it could have done the same thing with just imagery as well. I, the problem is if it's popular and I like, I like his book. I mean, I started to read it, but then far from finished. The message is good and really interesting and things, but going with those shortcuts to try to impress people's mind. The problem is those those things that are not quite correct will get amplified as people talk about it and it's going to become a monster. And that's the problem I have with the press in general. <laughs> it's like, why do they do this? They don't need to, it's going to become a monster down the road. But anyway, it's just my, my own personal view of things. But, but yeah, the basic the information, the idea is correct. Yeah, I think the reference he was trying to draw there was between kind of, I don't know if I could say traditional chanting or prayers, when he looked at that, he discussed that, I think, in that chapter around those numbers. He said, there seemed to be a similar timing for chanting and prayers that are spoken out loud. And that's where he came up with the 5.5 seconds. Yeah, I mean, anybody can do it. I 5.5 is too short for me. I need eight. So everybody's a hmm. bit different as well, but that's... I think it comes the message, the more more time you breathe in and out, the more air you go in. So I think that's the message and it's completely correct. So, so we've done a lot of different breathing practices so far already, and some of them have the same timing for inhale and exhale, and some of them have different. In this case, it's like the same. Like, what are the benefits or costs of doing it different and the same? Why would you change it up? 
So I'm going to, it's going to be very personal. Whatever time I'm told to, to, to do a gym, I'm just going to accelerate my, you know, if it's only, you know, three seconds, air in, so let's request air for, for a second intake. I accelerated my amount of inhalation to maximize my airway. So I don't know if it's the way you're supposed to do it, but this is how I do it. Exhale is always longer, and which is always good. So I really take my time to remove everything down, and that's really good. So I don't know if I'm cheating or not, but this is how I do it. My idea is really to breathe in, feel as much as possible on the time given, which is also has some benefits in terms of the mind and uh, stress um, uh, relief and exhale and the timing. But my goal is I need to be full here and then be completely empty there. So am I doing it wrong? <laughs> I don't know. How you do it, guys? Well, so I, I do notice that naturally I exhale shorter than normal. So I, I don't know if that's just a cause upbringing in like stressful environments and that's just something that we naturally had. So that would have been my next question is, do we have some kind of internal timing or clock that when we're not thinking about our breath would regulate it so that we inhale the same amount as we exhale or is there something and does the environment kind of change that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we do this exercise, it's our conscious mind overriding our automatic system, which is stored somewhere in the back of the neck here in the middle of Gata. So yeah, we don't think about it. You're going to, you're not thinking about it. You're still going to breathe. It's automatic and things can get regulated. I don't know if you have that. And maybe once in a while I do this big sigh, right? It pisses my husband to no end because like, why am I boring you? No, no, it's just my, my body is just responded because I needed this somehow at that moment of, as in this moment of time, I need more uh, more air. That's completely automatic, and yeah. So we 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 have that down. How m is the volume in and out equal? Yes. Otherwise, we would inflate or deflate. But it's it's completely subconscious. Otherwise, we would die during our sleeps, right? So, so yeah. Okay. So I had another question, but we're getting further and further off topic. So I just want to make sure go back to our questions, and if we have time at the end. I'll have some additional ones. Okay. Uh, so here's an, another quote from James Nestor. For every 10 pounds of fat lost in our bodies, eight and a half pounds of it comes through the lungs. Most of it CO2 mixed with a bit of water vapor. The rest is sweated or urinated out. This mm -hmm. is a fact that most doctors, nutritionists, and other medical professionals have historically gotten wrong. The lungs are the weight regulating system of the body. So I was puzzled with that, with that because basically he's, he's correct. Well, the, the, there's two fuels that we, we use for energy, which is carbohydrates or sugars and fats, which is technically the triglyceride. We don't burn cholesterol for energy. It's just triglyceride, which is made of fatty acids. And we're going to broke these down into carbon dioxide and water, right? fair bit of water generated, especially if you burn fat, so which is good. So yeah, he's right. We are when we're burning this energy and if you want to lose weight, you're going to have to burn the excess, which is mostly stored fat. You're going to exhale carbon dioxide. So yes, you need, you know, yeah. Lungs are completely uh, essential to losing weight, but I think more than that, it's necessary for life. <laughs> Before losing weight, so we still need to breathe no matter what. 
So the part I didn't get, and maybe one of you can can give me some context here, when he says that nutritionists and doctors and other medical professionals have historically gotten that wrong, what does he mean by that? Because they do know this, they do understand that. So what 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 is he referring to in terms of gotten wrong? I feel like so typically when we're saying about losing weight, we're saying intake less calories. Mm-hmm. While here he seems to say that the calories that you're ingesting is one part, which is what I think what most nutritionists, doctors say. But when you exhale, like the carbon dioxide is the is the matter that comes out. And so I think he's saying that while you can regulate like the intake, the the getting rid of it, which includes burning and then having all that exhaled, mm-hmm. seems to be a thing that's missing. Okay. Yeah. So, so here I'm going to side with making sure if that's the correct things is if you want to lose weight, if you're gaining weight because it's an imbalance between what you consume and what you're getting in, in terms of energy, right? So people that don't do any exercise, they're still going to need energy because their brain need energy to function their heart. So there's a basic level of energy level you need to get, even if you stay in bed all day long. And you need to eat that same amount of energy to see stable in terms of weight. If you have more of this, more intake than what you consume, you're going to gain weight. People that are, you know, athletes, they you burn a lot of energy because they do this extra stuff. So they need to eat more. So there's still a balance between your food intake and, and losing weight. You're not going to burn the calories just by breathing. You still need to work out, right? So in that regard, yes, the, the airways is very important, but you still need to work out to burn those calories. So that's number one. The breathing out is going to come naturally anyway, because without breathing, you can't live anyway. So that's why it's a bit bit of a weird statement to make, but. Yeah, what, what does he expect the nutritionist and the doctor to say? Is like, you know, breathe heavy. You want to lose 10 pounds, just breathe it out. I mean, that is not going to happen because the difference of breathing normally and breathing heavily, you know, you, you will have a bunch of people passing out from hyperoxygenation. And so it, it's not something that you can work with unless somebody is does not know how to breathe or is breathing too shallow and has a CO2 poisoning of his blood or something like that, then then yes, but it's not a diet. Yeah, that's one thing that I would be missing from most of the, like even interviews with James Nestor, there hasn't been any like debate on the other side just to question certain things. So it'd be great to, I'm, I'm really enjoying this because we're getting to uncover some of these things that he's saying. But there is one thing that's related to that, which I thought was very interesting. There's a, there's a YouTube video from a channel called Veritasium. I think many of you might've heard of it. He's a science educator. Um, so he was asking people around and trying to answer the question of where does the matter that goes into tr- trees come from? So when a tree grows from like a small sapling up to like those really huge redwoods, where does the actual physical material come from? And first people say, oh, it's water. Then people say it's the soil. and But it's actually the air, which is like the weirdest, like, I can't even grasp that. The, the, just, yeah, the carbon in the air from the carbon dioxide is what builds the matter of the trees and makes them like super huge. 
it's it's like the weirdest thing. Yeah, that is completely correct. You still need the soil because the air doesn't bring the well. They can't use the nitrogen from from the air to to provide the nitrogen they do need, but the, they convert carbon dioxide in the air, our waste, into sugar, which is kind of mind-boggling. And they, this sugar they can use to build more cells or for energy. This this is just this mind-boggling things about the earth. Is like we provide the way a waste product, but for our waste, is the food of plants. It's awesome. It's it's completely true. Yeah. Which is, it. It, it seems like that, that has to happen to have this balance within nature. Like, you know, plant material is, is way outweighs all animal material. So we need that, that, that amount. We need, we need those plants to be doing that. Or else yep. we're all just gonna die in our, our waste carbon dioxide. And the more oxygen because they also their waste product is oxygen. So yeah. So the callback is they produce oxygen, which is the waste for them, but we do need it. <laughs> there it, it seems like their 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 respiration system is is reciprocal to ours. Yeah. Right. They breathe in their nutrients, we breathe out our weight. Yeah. No, their their respiration is the same as ours. Okay, so so they respirate and they use oxygen the same way we do. The only thing is they use the CO2 whereas we don't. But at night, a plant will suck out the oxygen out of the room and is not going to consume CO2. It only does that during the lights day. Okay, mm. so it needs lights to capture. So respiration is the same for plant and us. It, we don't do photosynthesis, which is a stuff that captures carbon. Uh, okay. But that could be, you know, when, when I'm thinking, I'm a big fan of science fiction, and I think that the next human evolution would be green skin that could capture CO2 and allow you to make carbon, you know, complex carbon that you could use for and growth. I don't think it would be that difficult to do, honestly, as a crazy biologist. Yes, for to complain what Dom said, so is right. They also do do respiration. What we call respiration in science, it's not the you know inhale exhale. It's what happened in the mitochondria, this little organelle that lives in our cells. They are the one that finish up you know burning glucose, burning fats to make energy, and that needs oxygen. It uses oxygen and produce. Uh, carbon dioxide, but they have a not the plants have an extra organelles we don't have. That's the one that have chlorophyll. And those are chloroplast, and those are the sugar builders. And those will use carbon dioxide. It transform them into glucose, um, and use and then you can use the glucose for something else. And plants didn't have that from the start. They got it from algae, okay, or from from you know small. So that means. We could do that as well. <laughs> yep. But we can move and plants don't. So it's good to be an animal too. <laughs> so that, that's super interesting. So like the, the mitochondria side generating mm -hmm. ATP through from glucose and oxygen, yeah. they have that and we have that. Mm -hmm. But then we have to ingest glucose from some external source while they can generate it from air plus sunlight. Yeah. 
So yeah. they're creating their own fuel for their yeah. engines. Yeah, huh. absolutely. That's super cool. Okay, so the next one, let's see. Nitric oxide. Whew, yeah. Is it reasonable to regard intubated patients as being deprived of NO produced in the nasal airways because ventilation only occurs through the flexible plastic tube passed through the mouth and throat? So short story, no. <laughs> now let me explain that a little bit. So I, I read the article, the scientific article that was forwarded to me. And it's an article, uh, typical article produced by people, by MDs that, you know, they have patients and they see something cool and they publish what's, uh, what they see, which is very important for our research because they're the only one that can actually do human, okay, this is what happened in humans and other scientists, PhD, they work in other animals. But the problem is they're limited with the number of people they have to work with. So that particular study was eight patients. You can't make an assumption with eight patients. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to completely disregard that. But so I went and dig out a little bit deeper into that, that story of nitricoside. And there's something to it, but the, the, the upper airways are negligible in terms of nitric oxide production. So do I need to, I, I feel compelled to explain a little bit what nitric oxide do for you in terms of breathing. Yeah, I assume so. So nitric oxide is this very simple molecule, right? It's nitrogen atom with, with oxygen and, and that's it. But it's a very potent uh, signaling molecule. And one of the things it does in particular is to relax smooth muscles. So smooth muscles are muscles we have around our blood vessels, muscles we have around our airways. And when they relax, in the case of airways, more air comes in, right? So nitric oxide is our friend up to a point because there's such a thing as too much nitric oxide. So yeah, we do nitric oxide and this nitric oxide is made by particular cells. So the biggest producer of nitric oxide is actually the cells that line your blood vessels called endothelial cells. This is the biggest producer, but the, they also are produced by the airways. And so I dig up this really much more recent and really cool review that actually synthesized all this. And really the biggest producer of, of nitric oxide are in the lower airways. So the, the trachea, the bronchus, and even the alveoli. So intubated patients, they're still going to have plenty of nitric oxide generated locally. And if you intubate a patient uh, that has a condition like uh, asthma, they can actually add a bit of nitric oxide in the air they intubate them with to provide this excess nitric oxide that they sometimes lack. And actually it has a bronchodilator effect. So it helps them. So yeah. And, and if I can add something also, the, the problem with intubation or, or oxygen mask is that they provide extremely rich oxygen. The atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, very little oxygen compared to it. And so if you are providing uh, um, gas that is deprived of nitrogen, then you won't have the source to make your nitrogen oxide. Okay. And so <clears throat> rather than the tube itself, it's whatever, you know, if they, if they provide compressed air, 
then with the same comp uh, composition, that's fine. If they provide pure oxygen in case where there is a really deficit in oxygen, then you might have uh, a lack of nitrogen to, to do the nitric oxide. When, when people with heart condition take nitroglycerin pills, okay, this is uh, to provide nitric oxide to relax their blood vessels, basically, and avoid a heart attack. Yeah, that's so interesting. If you if you just take a critical eye to this to this paper that he, he wanted to share, he's trying to use it as a way to just reinforce the nasal breathing over mouth breathing. But he didn't think about like, this is so clear that if you're missing something that you can generate through the nose and you're force feeding like intubation, you're force feeding air into the lungs, the person that's putting the air into that tube can adjust it to whatever level you need it to be. So I, it really doesn't matter whether you're breathing through your mouth or nose. It's what they put into that tube that yeah. matters. So it's yeah, absolutely, and that's why we would need a, a MD that actually specialize in, in 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 that when they mechanically ventilate people. I'm sure it's not hundred percent only pure oxygen. I'm sure it's a mix. Oh, I'm sure. I would think that it's a mix of regular air and they supplement the oxygen to make sure there's enough going into the, the blood. But um, I'm not an MD, so we would need something to this. But I'm just going to add one more thing because I think it's interesting, especially in the COVID era. So people that do intubate and you know do the mechanical uh, ventilation, that science has evolved apparently quite drastically in the past 20 years. And we used to force feed the lungs with so much air it actually damaged the lungs because there was too much pressure in particular. And that led to plenty of side effects. You're damaging the lung tissue, which as mentioned earlier, is very fragile. And um, reading this article, what they say is that also could increase the uh, production of nitricoside to pathological level and others too high. And as if it's too high, it's going to do the reverse is going to shut down the airway and the tube does goes on you so far right it goes on you up to here so if you vaso if you contract the airways below that you're going to have less air going into your lungs so this is like this feedback loop going on so you really want to have enough nitric oxide you don't want too much and so that was i think an, an interesting uh, idea right there yeah all, all intubation are not equal there is there is a one where you're providing pressure Okay, so there is a pump that take the air from outside and pressurize it and help inflate your lungs. Okay, and there is the one where the lungs are inflating just good. It's just you need to increase the oxygen concentration so that it can be captured. And in that case, you need very little, you know, I mean, this is just like, uh, you know, in an airplane where the stuff falls down and they tell you the bag will not inflate. It's because they're providing you with pure oxygen. There's no pressure needed because your lungs are going to expand fine, even in the absence of pressure. Yeah. So. Yeah, actually, very. Thank you for bringing this up because, uh, in our earlier conversation about problems with getting COVID, this is one thing that I've heard is that even if you don't have any long-term effects, even if you just have like this immediate bout of having trouble breathing, if you go into a hospital that does has one of these like older machines. You could be, you could have the hospital damage you permanently because you're, you got caught. And that's happening to a few people. Like I, I've heard that, that like, yes, you could get sick, 
that's okay. You can recover from the illness, but the damage that the ventilator did on you is permanent. So yeah, don't get sick. Yeah. They're trying to save you, you know, so there is, at that point, it's a matter of, you know, keeping a patient alive and if they survive, whatever they're going to have to deal with after is anyway better than the alternative, but it's, it's at certain cost. Yeah, in the end, what's really important is not necessarily the machine, but the, the people that manage the machine. Though This is what you pay for when you go to a hospital, the training of the nurses and the physician behind this machine. It's, it's very complex. And the thing that worries me right now is those people are burned out because there's too many people in the hospital requiring those machines. Mistakes are going to be made, not because they didn't like the training, it's because they're tired. And then those accidents you mentioned, Patrick, will, will occur. So that's what worries me. So yeah, don't get sick. <laughs> this is not, don't get sick. Yeah. Okay, so I think we only have time for one more. I'm really just like super enjoying these conversations. So maybe we could just do this like once a month or something like that. Have you guys, because I think we can keep coming up with it. Ron, maybe do you have one one of the questions remaining that you might want them to address before we wrap up today? If I may, I have about a two and a half minute video I'd like to share. Yes. May, may I do that? Yeah. Okay, so let's see. I, I need to. Yeah, let me. I guess you need to make me a course. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Hold on a sec. Almost there. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, and I got to do the audio too. I remember that from last time. Okay, this is a, just a short video of the woman who holds the world's record for uh, free diving. And I just want you to imagine what what do you imagine is happening, you know, metabolically with her during this dive. See that she's rapidly mouth breathing here. Thank <laughs> you. 
I, I read that it's 107 meters that she dove down to or 351 feet and she held her breath for three and a half minutes. I didn't see her exhaling. I didn't see bubbles coming out. And it looked like when she was going down, you know, she was moving a little and then coming up, it was more rapid. Yeah, so what's so what's happening also in point. So at the beginning, the rapid breathing is to maximize the oxygenation of the blood. So that's what they're trying to do is hyper oxygenate the blood so she could last longer. So that's what she's doing. And then so that, that that's the you know, there's multiple versions of, of you know, apnea dry, uh, driving. This is the hardest because they use the muscles. And that's really, 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 really amazing. So if, if you notice, whether it's she's coming down or coming up, at first she, she palms quite vigorously and then it slows down. That's because her buoyancy is changing as she goes deeper, right? Whatever air she has and the maximum air she has in the lung is going to shrink her. Lungs are shrinking because of the pressure, right? So air like any gases are compressible and, and they will compress. And so as she goes deeper, now her lungs are very, very small and her buoyancy has changed. So she actually sink. So she doesn't need, when she goes down, she doesn't need toward the end to, to palm that much. But now when she goes up, she needs to palm vigorously because she doesn't have any buoyancy. And I don't know if you've noticed the movement of her palming is very different when she goes down and comes up. When she comes up, it's lots of very shallow movements. She's using specifically the a part of your muscles that burn anaerobically glucose. So this is amazing because she's maximizing her oxygen use to the organs that needs it, her brain, her heart, you know, all those things by only or really try to maximize which type of fibers her muscle she uses, right? So she's going to produce lactic acid as a result, but she doesn't use She'll get rid of that in the next few hours, but she minimizes the amount. That's the training they also have to do. And I have no clue how they do it, but I know that's what they're trying to do. So yeah, those are the, the three points I wanted to mention here. It, you know, in the little description that said that she started as actually apnea training at age 13. Yeah. And she's 28 at the time she set this record. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's no small feat. You need to know about your body. You need to know about the physiology mm -hmm. because there's side effect of apnea that can happen after you come back. So there's always a bounce back of your system that can be quite toxic. And so if you mm -hmm. know what you're doing, you can end up in the hospital because mm -hmm. you're decompensating as they call it. But yeah, this is beautiful. <laughs> what I don't understand is, you know, if, if I go at the bottom of my pool, it's just three meters and my ear and my sinus want to blow up. It's mm. really painful. I don't understand how they can go deeper than that. It's, it's you know, the breathing apart, which is amazing, of course. That pain mm. is... Yeah, you need, you need to decompensate. So we have actually a tubing that connects the ears to your nasal cavity. Mm -hmm. When you do the, a salva technique to put more air to mm -hmm. equilibrate your, your, your eardrums. This is what you're doing. The problem is nine out of 10 people have those tubes called eustachian tubes that are blocked. Mm. And many people stop scuba diving, just even scuba diving, not even free diving because of that. Mm. Uh, so it should be a rope and it can be done surgically, but nobody goes through the trouble. 
And that thing happened in the first 10 meters. The first 10 meter of, of, of diving, this is the most important things because that's where you're shrinking the most your lungs and all mm. the things. So if you can pass the 10 meter marks, everything else below that is a piece of cake. I, I still, I don't quite understand how your lungs are shrinking to the pressure if the mm. lungs are inside your body and the pressure is happening on your skin outside. Yeah, uh, so the pressure, the pressure is there, but just liquids, can be pressurized, uh, can be pressurized, but they don't change volume. But all liquids, uh, sorry, all, all gas will will actually shrink because whatever pressure exerted by 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 the water, what's happening is you on top of your ten meters, you have ten meters worth of water on top of you that's pushing you down, and that gets transferred into the water of your body, right? And it, they do resist in terms of shrinking because they're made of fluid. But then the fluid of your body is going to exert pressure on your lungs and in, inside you have air. Mm. So that's going to shrink. So it's air. Think of it of weight of the water pressing on the fluid inside your body who will put pressure onto your lungs. And that's why mm. they shrink. Mm. Oh, so it's you're like having all the actually getting smaller? Yep. yep. But the liquid in your body is not getting smaller. So whatever it has, it's... Yep. It stays the same. So all the cavity in your body are shrinking. Like your balloon, you know, the surface of the balloon does not change. It's just the the, the air inside that can be compressed. If you put it underwater, or if you put a weight on it. So the difference between the lungs and the, the other cavities we have, like the, the behind your eardrums and, and the sinuses we have here, is that the lungs can collapse because they're very flexible, so it doesn't hurt. But your cavities inside your bones, they're actually solid. <laughs> so if you re if there's less pressure inside, it's going to hurt. And that's why your sinuses hurt when you go down. You can't repressurize them to the pressure of your body, which means you need to put in more air to equilibrate those. So that's why it hurts so much. That's so interesting. Okay, so there's the lungs is uh, probably the biggest part that has air in your body because yep. most of the rest of your, wh where else in your body has like just air rather than like an organs or liquids or something like that? So really it's, it's about the head. So it's the sinuses of the face. So we have a sinus above your eyebrows. We have one under your eyes. We also have one in the jaw and they're all mm -hmm. communicating with one another. They think there's a bunch of tubing that joins them together. And ultimately they connect with your nasal cavity and that's where that's how you can actually repressurize them when you dive. You just force air into those tubes through your nasal cavity that are going to equilibrate. And that's pretty much it. I, th I think that's enough holes because those cause us a whole bunch of problems. There's a reason why we have holes in the skull, but when you're scuba divers, you wish you didn't have those holes for sure. So last thing, there was two things that you mentioned. I was just wondering, we can bring it back to our martial arts, which is you talked about anaerobic breathing and you talked about oxygenating our blood so that we can last longer without actually inhaling. Yeah. Are there benefits of doing either one of those in, let's say, a kendo match? Because like if you're holding your breath in some ways or if you're just using like twitch fibers to be quick without like using everything. Yeah, no. My humble opinion is, is no, because anaerobic activity, as I mentioned, generate lactic acid, right? So you can train, and in kendo, they try very much you to do so. They train your body to build more of those anaerobic fibers so you can uh, last longer on one breath. And the idea behind it, if you don't have to breathe in, 
that means your core is engaged and you can have much faster reaction time. So that's the idea behind it. But you don't want to do that for too long because guess what? You're going to build lactic acid uh, and not carbon dioxide as a waste product. And lactic acid is an acid and that will acidify your, your muscle and then acidifying your muscles or any part of your body, to be honest, it's not a good thing. We are set up to function at pH 7.6. If the pH is not correct, the biochemical processes do not work properly. And so long story short for a kendo match, if you do this, you're going to fatigue, right? And, and you see them. And there's a reason why a kendo match lasts for, you know, three, four, five minutes, five is too long. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just they're tired in it because they built so much lactic acid. Mm. It takes time to get to get that removed. So unless you have a super liver like Michael Phelps, who can recycle his lactic acid as, mo- as much uh, as fast as he makes it, then you don't have a problem. But let's be honest, Michael Phelps is one in the, one, mm. one one of a kind. So, and I think the other side of Patrick's question was, uh, what about hyperoxygenation? Yeah. So you know, breathing really quickly, and if you do that what you realize is you're going to be lightheaded, okay? Mm -hmm. You're going to be a little euphoria because your brain loves the extra oxygen. (laughs) And, you know, it would be like smoking pots before a match. You might not be at your best for the few minutes that it lasts, okay? So, So basically learning to breathe well and then holding the pressure when you attack or you defend or, or you know, when you're in, in, in the right distance, it's the optimization of deep, calm breathing and, and holding your breath. And I think that if you, can, if, you, if you can balance that so that you're always ready is, is the, the training and the optimization is the perfect combination. If, if you need, you know, Two minutes of heavy breathing for every attack you do, you're not going to be very efficient. So, yeah. And uh, the last thing I want to point out, because that was pointed out to me to, uh, by my doctor last week when I, my kids had a physical, you don't want when you're doing a movement like like a super fast, you know, pulling weight or super fast thing, you don't want to actually hold on to your breast and you lock it in like like this. You don't want to do that because it's really bad for the heart. It creates this Vasalva system against the same principle as the compensating your thing. And uh, that has a side effect on the heart. So what you really want to do is control your breathing, but never really lock it in. Try to exhale just a little bit. Okay. Because if you exhale just a little bit, that means you're not locking in and therefore you won't have those bad side effects coming on. So that's Maybe that's the reason for the Kiai. Yes. The yelling. Maybe maybe that's a building control so that you excel instead of yeah you know it, it's they they realized how bad it was to to keep it in yeah absolutely yeah that makes total sense by uh, physiologically speaking so, but that's sorry. not done in all martial arts yeah so, I know yeah maybe we should do it in yai <laughs> I that would be I, interesting. I've experienced where if you train without TI and you're trying to focus in, like if you're learning something and then the person decides to go, okay, I'm full TI. It's really disrupting trying to do that. 
So yeah, there's there's that release of, of air, but there's also that disruption that you can cause on your opponent. Yep. Lots of good things with Kiai. I love Kiai. <laughs> but just generally the concept of like keeping in some kind of flowing state rather than being solid to be able to move. I remember as when I was younger, I was playing a lot of video games and we were doing first person shooters. So I had to use the mouse and get it to wherever the other opponent is and then click before be able to hit them. So, but you never know what part of the screen they'll appear. So instead of just holding your hand still, like the players, you're, you're always twitching a little bit. You're always moving a little bit so that when you need to, you can just immediately yeah, because your 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 muscle are warmed up and engaged, you just react that much faster. It is not the inertia of I need to activate my my thing. So that makes sense as well for different reasons. Yeah. Cool. Anyways, thank you again, Alain and Dominique, for for joining us. This has been amazing. I learn learn so much every time. So hopefully, we can keep doing this. Uh, we'll Ron and I. I guess we'll work again on <laughs> questions. <laughs> You're that, making me work so hard. <laughs> That's right. Love, love that because like for anyone else, we could like bring up some questions and then they'll just come and say, oh yeah, I read them. But mm -hmm. speaking to like scientists and professors, you actually go out and do some research and that's <laughs> You're just to learn. <laughs> I, I, I can't do that. Um. So we're going to exploit, I mean, use that for as much as we can. Exploit, you said exploit. it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, while I was drinking, Yelen was, you know, researching all last night. <laughs> it, it makes a difference. Well, it's the two different types. Like, there's some conversations where you like to, and this one, we went in all over the place, all over the place. But sometimes when we want to go deep, you need to do that prep work. Mm. Just like how Ron had done all that prep work to prepare the question. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. This work is only possible due to the active engagement of the community and I need your help to keep it going. Please leave your comments, questions, feedback and ideas with us on Facebook and Instagram at tokusky.canada, subscribe to our monthly newsletter at subscribe.tokusky.ca or email us at podcast.tokusky.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>